I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It is Monday, which means it's time for the new and improved Front 3 podcast. Me, Adam Boltwood, the one and only Nico Morales. How you doing, Adam? And of course, Chris Hennage. Lovely to be here. On today's podcast, we're going to be reviewing and previewing the Champions League semi-finals, talking the relegation battle, who's going down in the Premier League, and of course, Barcelona's La Liga win their seventh title in 10 years but before all that though if you don't follow us on twitter you may have missed some news this afternoon about the future of the front three that's okay i'll fill you in now um as you may have noticed it's been a busy few months of the front three i think it's fair to say uh life changes for five of us meant the podcast hasn't been as good or as consistent as it should be and for that we apologize you know, the future of the Front Free podcast is something we've been discussing in recent weeks and recent months because we truly appreciate you guys taking the time to listen to us. So many of you have been on this journey with us since the beginning and together we feel like we've all built a community around this podcast and for that we couldn't be more grateful. So as I said, we've been working hard to figure out how to move forward with the Front Free, how to make it the best it can be, juggling our work commitments, our life commitments, and that's why we've decided this week that we're coming back bigger and better than ever. That's right, starting today, you'll be getting more TF3 than ever before. Not only the regular weekend review and Q&A podcasts, but also post-match analysis, exclusive interviews, and much, much more. But in order to create this content and continue creating it over the World Cup and into next season, we need your support. At the end of the season, we'll be asking you to back us on Patreon. In exchange, you'll officially become a member of The Whole and you'll continue to receive all our exciting new content as well as bonus Patreon exclusives. For those of you who can't support us on Patreon, don't worry, we'll still love you. And you'll still be guaranteed your weekly dose of The Front Free on Mondays, completely free as always. But in order to take The Front Free to the next level, we firmly believe this is the way to give you the best possible podcast. We're truly excited about the future of the front three, and we hope that you'll continue on this journey with us. There's lots to come. Stay tuned. Um, it's exciting times, Nico. 100%. And like Adam said, the majority of the podcasts, or, or at least uh, one 
big file of the podcast will still be available to you for free forever we want we don't want you guys to think we're completely alienating you if you don't have the ability or if you you know don't want given our consistency to to support us right away but i am uh really excited by the amount of people that have come out and said that they would instantly support us i mean that's so nice of you guys we really appreciate that and uh we thank you for all your support but there will be you know better content that's kind of the thing about this is that we you know in order to to make this podcast very good we need to you know we have to put more time into it and that's what we've been trying to do lately that's what we'll be doing going forward and you guys backing us on patreon really helps us do that so if you if you do become an official member of the whole then you will be get getting all of the front three that's possible exclusive interviews q a podcasts all that stuff so it'll be great fun it'll be better than ever before like adam is saying and i think it's going to be a really good time what this gives us the opportunity to do is not only i think refocus after a sort of period of uh, haze as, as we tried to work out the best way to move forward but also I think it kind of lets us reconnect with the people who listen in a much more direct and expressive ways as weird as that might sound because I think what you'll see with this new content that we're going to do is is a lot more of how we work and how we operate come out because I think we can sit and spout opinions to you all day long and that's great but I think if you do choose to go for the Patreon option, I think you'll almost see a little bit more of our personality come out in, in the type of work and the type of stuff that we want to do. But I think ultimately, no matter what, whether you choose Patreon or, or not, I think for me, the most important thing is it's almost just an appreciation of those who stuff around because there's so much competition out there when it comes to, to listening to podcasts, especially football ones. And I think if you have stood by with things the, the, the way that they were, I think to me, that's that's almost um, the greatest sense of, of commitment that we could have got. So, so for me personally, I think I appreciate that more than, than anything right now. We will be releasing more details about our Patreon, how you can support us, what you'll be receiving in exchange for backing us. All the details will be announced at the end of the season. But for now, if you like, this is going to be a month's taster of all the exciting content that you will be getting in the future on the front free, We hope that this shows you why you should support us and why you should join us for the new and improved front free. For the meantime, uh, myself, Chris, Nico, we are going to be your core front free. Dave and Lawrence are still part of the podcast. Dave is taking somewhat of a backseat. He's incredibly busy right now. He's got so many projects on the go, but he isn't going anywhere. He is still part of this podcast you will be hearing from him very soon lawrence as well uh, a hugely busy man so many plates that he's spinning he is still part of the front three but for now as i say myself chris nico we are going to be the regular starters uh lawrence and dave they're going to be coming off the bench you need a squad approach in this podcast game but yeah all the details do go and follow us on twitter at the front three we'll be releasing all the details in due course and explaining how you can back us on Patreon. But for now, watch this space. Right, with all that exciting stuff out of the way, let's talk football. First up is the Champions League. We do have to review the first legs of those semi-finals and preview the second legs this week. Uh, first up, Liverpool. Going into that second leg against Roma with a 5-2 lead after a stunning first leg. Um, I think it's fair to say, Nico, the way Jürgen Klopp's side put Roma to the sword was sensational. Although it did feel like the Giallarossi played in to Liverpool's hands. 
To a certain extent, yeah. And with, uh, I mean, I, I recently wrote something sort of tactical talking about the different approaches and stuff like that. And I think maybe the thing that I want to highlight the most is that just because, like, for example, Roma had the result against Liverpool doesn't necessarily mean the approach in theory was incorrect. But um, yeah, they definitely exposed Roma. You could say they played into their hands. I like I said, in, I think in the preview podcast, would have liked to have seen them be a little bit more defensive given how uh, teams like Burnley and others that I mentioned have fared against Liverpool and they've kind of thwarted their attacking efforts because Liverpool like to create space. And Roma, you know, they tried to compact the pitch. They tried to get them to play out of the pressure that they're not very good at doing because they don't have that many players are, that are that great at doing that. But the problem was is that Liverpool kind of did the same thing that they did to Manchester City. They used the long ball to stretch the pitch they completely exposed the three at the back through the pace of their front three. Great podcast um, and really a great attacking trio. And, you know, it just it just really wasn't good because when you isolate defenders like Juan Jesus and Fazio with Mohamed Salah and, and Sadio Mane, I mean, it, it just it turns out the way it did. So, yeah, I would say uh, it, it's kind of difficult, but I can see the I can see the, the reason why um, you say or the, the coach went with that approach. It is a very difficult situation Roma find themselves going into the second leg. Chris, they need three goals. I mean, we've seen them do that before, but attacking is going to leave space for the one and only Mohamed Salah to exploit, surely. Yeah, I think for me that was kind of the, the thing that was most intriguing because obviously for the Barcelona tie, De Francesco ripped up his, his playbook and, and redesigned the team. And so uh, there's part of me thinking, well, does he can do that again? Is that possible? Probably not. So does he just go back to a 4-3-3 and put nine goal in there and try and give the midfield, the central midfield, more energy, more mobility, and then also stop the, the back four in this case, if it's a 3 or 4 3, three being isolated? I, I don't think they'll be cavalier, personally. I think they'll, they'll try for an early goal. In fact, I was looking at some of the numbers just the other day and for both of these teams, <clears throat> especially last time out, you had Liverpool concede early at City, you had Roma score early against Barcelona. And and the, between the two of them, they, they've scored a good amount of, of early first-half goals. So I think Liverpool, possibly rightly so, will, will sit off a bit. But I don't think at the same time that Roma will, will throw everything at them straight away. I think they'll try and game manage the situation very precisely. You could al- you could almost say that that they they kind of went backwards in their approach, right? Because like I was saying, I think a lot of people would have preferred to see them be more defensive in 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 the first leg and kind of see what they get given they were away from home. Um but now now that they, you know, you would imagine in that kind of situation where they don't have to recover a three-goal deficit, they would be more attacking. They would try to compress Liverpool and put them under pressure and make them, uh, you know, try to expose a game-state situation in, in sort of an aggregate way where they need to, to come after them and have Liverpool play into their hands and, and to that extent. But you would say almost to some respect that they did that backwards, right? I mean, that that's kind of the, the difficulty in seeing the legitimacy of, of Di Francesco's approach is that it was kind of a, a weird thing to do in the first leg. Anything for, for Liverpool to worry about in this second leg, Nico, for you, or is it done and dusted? I think so. Uh, given this level, you know, given this level of competition in the Champions League, I, I think anything can happen. And given how much uh, Di Francesco changed in the in the second leg for Barcelona, I mean, he has literally this season uh, overturned the same deficit, right? Three goals against Barcelona, but 
I, at the same time, the game state situation, that's kind of what I was alluding to before, completely favors Liverpool because they ha- they can be compact and defensive and force Roma to expose themselves. That's why it was you know so weird. You want to try to play for the second leg. You want to set yourself up well so that it kind of comes down to the second leg, and they very much did not do that. The only way that they can kind of go after it um, or win this game is if Liverpool completely shit the bed, for lack of a better term. So, um, yeah, I would... Yeah, technical term. exactly. <laughs> so I, I, I mean, if Liverpool mess this up, I mean they they've really messed it up. Staying on Liverpool uh, for a moment, much has been made of the departure of Zico Buvac today from the club. Klopp's right hand man of seventeen years, he's taken the decision to take some time away from the club for personal reason. Some reports, though, Chris, claiming there's been some sort of bust up between the two. Um, I haven't heard any specific reasons as to why he's leaving. One of the things that stuck out to me recently though it was just over the weekend where I read that their relationship um it was quite polarizing in its makeup because <clears throat> the way it was characterized in in the piece that I read was that one minute they could be having quite a heated discussion about maybe a tactical idea or, or whatever and he would storm out of Klopp's room and then within 10 minutes they'd be back the the exact phrase that was used back in each other's arms kind of laughing and joking again and I think from from my own experiences in life, um, relationships like that have a sell-by date and there's a point where the argument maybe oversteps one or the other. But I think at the same time, it's it's somewhat unfair and disingenuous to speculate when he said it personal reasons, because that could be a, a very wide scope of, of possibilities. And so I think it's best to take it on face value and, and just respect what is what is there. Yeah, I think you're right. To take it at face value as it stands now, we'll, we'll see how it develops. I'm sure there's more to come um, from this story. Uh, finally, before we move on on Liverpool, Roberto Firmino over the weekend signing a new five-year deal at the club alongside Salonico. He has been one of Liverpool's most important players this season. So great news for uh, for Liverpool fans. 100%. Like I've said before uh, on this podcast, I think he's played a major role in the effectiveness of of, uh, of both Mohamed Salah and Sadio Mane. He kind of connects them. A lot of what they do long ball-wise, which is actually really important because as I've kind of touched on tactically in the last couple of matches against both Roma and Liverpool and other teams that try to pressure uh, Liverpool is that they do have that option. I mean, a lot of times in the tactical community, we kind of you know, dismiss that approach of playing long ball football, but it is really important when you have a player like Firmino that you can go directly to and win a significant portion of those battles that you can isolate defenders like Liverpool have. So it's it's really good to, to see how far he's come in terms of when he signed for Liverpool, because certainly when he came from, from Hoffenheim uh, under Brendan Rodgers, I didn't think he was very good, and he's transformed into probably one of the better players in, in his position in, um, on, at Liverpool under Klopp. So it's good to see. As for the other... Semi-final, Bayern Munich are facing Real Madrid at the Santiago Bernabeu, trailing 2-1. Yup Henkers calling on his side to be more efficient in this second leg. In the first leg, of course, they had 18 shots, but finished with a sixth successive defeat against Real Madrid. What do you make of this second leg, Chris? Is there a way back for Bayern Munich? I think, for me, if I was a Bayern fan, I'd be really frustrated with that first leg because, for me, it was self-emulation. It was a, a team who as you say, created a number of very good chances and really Rafinha's mistake without wishing to single out the individual is what facilitates Asensio's goal and really puts them back in the game um, and and pushes them through to a victory rather. So I think for me, 
you can't afford to make those kind of mistakes. It's as simple as that. It's it's there's no other way to characterize it. And and I think the second leg is quite hard to predict specifically in terms of goals because for me, Real Madrid have have really danced between two very different standards in this competition. The fact they didn't dominate the group stages, obviously they were beaten away by Tottenham and then drew at home. Even Juventus obviously had the the better of them last time out, beating them three one, and yet they seem to have this sort of boxers mentality where they ride the ropes for 10-15 minutes, they come under sustained pressure and then they just swing with this one punch that catches the opposition out like they did with Asensio. And next thing you know, you two one down and potentially going out of the competition. Now that for me is, is possibly why they are so good in this uh, competition. And, and to digress very briefly, I do wonder if this is maybe what we're going to see with, with Messi and Ronaldo when they do eventually call time on things is that Messi is the one that won more league titles. So he is defined by the course of a season, being able to produce moments in games and, and across a season. Whereas Ronaldo, the Champions League seems so perfect for him, whether it's 90 minutes, 180, 120, he just seems made for that one occasion, just being able to summon up the strength to go once more, to go again and do it when he's, when he's needed across those, those two week kind of, periods that we have with these ties so it's um yeah to me at least I think Real Madrid go through personally that's my opinion um but yeah the score I think could be could really be picked out of a hat and not questioned they they are without Isco and Danny Carver how Real Madrid Nico uh Zinedine Zidane suggesting earlier this week perhaps Cristiano Ronaldo could play it right back in this game uh, is that how Bayern could exploit this this Madrid side uh, possibly. I mean, I think they really did enough to exploit them in, in, in the first game. I think Jep Heinz's tactical approach was really, really good in the sense that what they did a lot of the time and what any team really wants to avoid is ball progression through the middle of the field, and that's exactly what they did. They didn't want to compete with Real Madrid down the wings because essentially no one can, given Marcelo and Carvajal and all the other players that they have in those in those positions. And so they... They provoked Real Madrid's pressing players, Lucas Vasquez, whoever else, through the middle, and then got Mats Hummels to, as he always does and as he always has throughout his career, progress the ball really well through the middle. Varane and 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 Ramos, um, if I'm correct in saying that he was he was playing that game, dealt with uh, Robert Lewandowski exceptionally well, and and I think they were unlucky to enjoy the result that they did and and Real Madrid have set it up well for themselves in the second game but I don't think I think the the result there was more down to to luck than anything else and and um and really a, a Rafinha mistake that you know is uncharacteristic of the player and just it's kind of a hazard of the job but in terms of the second leg as to how they go exposing Real Madrid I think if they do the same thing in the second leg then they come out victorious then there's not too much that they need to change um, in their approach because they did they did really well and not that many teams have been able to exploit Real Madrid in that way and it, I think it was a really intelligent way to do it. Mm, you say lucky the stats would back that up the the expected goals was 1.1 for Bayern 0.3 for Real Madrid is that right? Yes it was yeah. Yeah, I mean, that says it all. It'd be interesting to see how the second leg goes then. Um, but yeah, it looks like we could be having a Liverpool-Real Madrid sort of nostalgic throwback final as it stands. It was interesting as well to, to kind of talk about Byron, Byron's performance uh, in, in a different light. Their game, they, had, they essentially had to change their game plan 
what, maybe eight or nine minutes in after Arjen Robin went went out with an injury and they don't have Kingsley Coleman, who's probably preferred to Frank Ribery given how old he is and how many minutes he's played. And then Thiago, surprisingly, was not, you know, part of the starting 11. But, you know, they I think, you know, I, like I said before, I think they did really well in the first leg to expose that. And I think it, it just requires a repeat. The difficulty is that it's Real Madrid, it's at home, it's the semifinals of the Champions League. I mean, the, there is no bigger occasion for which that club can shine. As for the Europa League, I must say, 2-0 up in the first leg against Salzburg, looking like they're cruising through to the final. Arsenal, though, had a very disappointing first leg against Atletico Madrid. It all started so well. Uh, the goal for Arsenal, the chances created. But in the end, as Arsene Wenger said, Chris, the worst possible result for Arsenal, that away goal leaving them a mountain to climb. Yeah, I, th- I thought it was a hugely frustrating game uh, from an Arsenal perspective. I thought, yes, they can, they they did create a, a huge number of chances, and they deserve credit for that. I did also come away thinking that really it was a bit of a, a sort of stereotypical performance from Simeone and his team. It was what I kind of expected, almost loath to say masterclass because they did concede a lot of chances. But you get the point I'm trying to make. And I think this is the problem, is the second time round, I can't imagine that Atletico will be that naive um, as to pick up two yellow cards so quickly. And to be fair, Atletico could if they really wanted to. Um, I was going to use a, a swear word there, but say in the ultimate bout of S-Housery, um, try out and, and try and get a nil-nil or even a one-nil because it's a result that I think they've become very adept at producing. So this is a really difficult one for um Arsene Wenger and Arsenal, which is all compounded by the awful, awful away form that they've had in 2018. Um, even in Moscow, they weren't very convincing there. I thought personally that they conceded a lot of chances to a CSK side that are very much put together on a shoestring. So I guess if, if there was a time for for Arsenal's players to sort of stir themselves from the canvas, to use another boxing analogy, this is it. This is sort of the last chance saloon, I think. I think I'm right in saying they're the only team in England's top four divisions to not have a single away win. Might even be a single point away from home um, in 2018. Uh, of course, another defeat to Manchester United at the weekend. Uh, is there any way back for, for Arsenal, Nico? Uh, I mentioned that away goal. There's injury concerns for Alex Wobi, Henrik Mikatarian as well. Yeah, and as someone that hasn't kept up with the Europa League as, as much as I've kept up with the Champions League, I thought it was, I almost thought it was the second leg after hearing um, all of the reports from this match, given that Arsenal really only conceded once and, and Atletico Madrid had the away goal, but that's the difficulty is that they didn't capitalize upon a situation, which I think most people imagine they would or should, and it's Diego Simeone's Atletico Madrid. There is no other team. They're the quintessential defensive team in, in Europe, and they have been for a number of years now. So as much as it, you know, as much as someone could probably imagine Arsenal scoring more than one goal, it's really difficult to imagine that at Jose Calderon against Diego Simeone's really, really, really competent defensive side. So, yeah, I think it was probably the worst possible result and probably the bad, a bad send-off for, for Wenger in Europe because I think our, many Arsenal fans, given the, the almost reimagining of what they define as success... They would have liked to see, you know, a Europa League victory or at least a Europa League final, and they might not even get that this season. So, my fingers are crossed. I'm not sure I could handle Arsenal <laughs> winning the Europa League in their worst ever season, uh, while Spurs 
remain empty-handed. That would be tough to take. Right, let's talk about the relegation battle. Uh, it's, it's hotting up in the Premier League. The, the title's done and dusted. Spurs are now five points ahead of Chelsea with three games to go after winning against Watford tonight, meaning the relegation battle is where it's at as the season comes to a close. There's just three points separating Southampton in 18th on 32 points and West Ham in 15th on 35 points. You've also got Huddersfield in 16th place and Swansea in 17th place in the mix. Who do we think is going down here? Let's talk through some of the teams, some of the potential candidates for the drop. First up, Stoke, Chris. They're 19th at the moment with 30 points. They're three points from safety with two games to play despite that. Very impressive, I think, point against Liverpool, although they're playing a weekend team at Anfield this weekend. Southampton and Swansea have got a game in hand on Stoke, but they do face Palace and Swansea in their final two games. They're not quite dead and buried yet, Chris? Yeah, I think it's it's such a difficult one because I was thinking about this today. If I was in their position, would I want to play teams around me or would I want teams in that bracket from, say, 8th to 10th? Who really have got nothing to? Yeah, someone like Leicester. Yeah, you maybe. look at you look at Leicester. I mean, granted, Everton put out a fantastic performance against Huddersfield at the weekend, but I think Huddersfield are in in a tailspin. So th- there's certainly, I think, a lot of deconstruction that goes into this when you're a fan near the bottom of the table because you almost try to give yourself, I think, some self confidence and some reassurance that oh yeah, we can win this because, as you say, Leicester have got nothing to play for or Bournemouth have got nothing to play for when. The teams around you, you would imagine they'd be uh, up for it. And yet at the same time, they're in the same boat as you for a reason. It's it's not necessarily a case of a lack of effort. It's a lack of quality that defines them. Um, the thing with Stoke is they've got Palace at home. I think Palace, for me personally, when I've seen them away from home and the, and the makeup of their squad, they seem quite a difficult away team to play against because they're very quick. They've got a lot of good runners. Loftus-Cheek, Zaha... Um, Townsend in there as well, who I think w- would make me almost wary of, of being too aggressive in attacking because that would put you right for a, a counter-attack going the other way. Swansea City on the last day away from home. Personally, I've not been that impressed with Swansea of late. I know that Carlos Carvajal is, is fantastic for a quote and a good line and a funny metaphor, which I can appreciate as someone who's really stretched them on here at, at times, but a lot of their play seems almost like it was when I saw Sheffield Wednesday under him, which was a little laborious, not the most inventive, not the most creative, often away from home trying to get a 1-0 if possible, happy with a 0-0 though if it comes that way. So I think the fact that they haven't scored a huge number of goals is not a terrible surprise to me. Um, But I think Stoke are going to need... I think if I'm Stoke right now, personally, I'm looking at Huddersfield thinking they may not pick up any points. So if we can get those two wins and just leapfrog them with that one extra point, then everything's coming up Millhouse. In many ways. It does feel like Huddersfield are in trouble. Uh, City, Chelsea and Arsenal are their final three fixtures. So it's very difficult to see them getting any more points. And they are just three points clear of Southampton 18th. I must also say, as a, as, as a friend mm-hmm. kind of pointed out to me today, for some reason we were talking about Leicester's title-winning season, they won, the, they won the title with 81 points, and that was 10 points clear of Arsenal. Manchester City with, with 
three games left to spare have 93 points and are likely to break 100. I mean, we talk about and kind of the reason I bring that up is because kind of looking at the, the, the we're, we're talking about the relegation battle, obviously, and we're kind of looking at the, the very light difference in points between really the ones that are really in trouble for relegation and even those in 11th or, or 12th or 13th or whatever it may be. And I, I think it a lot of people are kind of talking about this separation between the top and the bottom. And basically from from Arsenal on up, it, it's kind of difficult to see those games where any of the bottom sides or anyone really past 12th um, was able to, to compete with those at the top. And, and it's just... To, for me, it was really interesting to see that that Leicester City actually won the title. And matter of fact, someone came second with 71 points that season, and our Premier League champions this season could break 100 points. I mean, there's a massive, there's mm. there's obviously a massive difference in in kind of season to season in competition. But I mean, for for a Manchester for any team to really win that many times in one season is is pretty incredible, in my opinion, at least. It's a huge golf. Um, it is interesting as well, of course, Palace beating. Leicester 5-0 at the weekend well and truly on the beach as well so uh, West Ham who've got Leicester up next will probably be looking at that uh, that game as the one to potentially get them the three points that, that would almost guarantee safety um, who do you think is going to go down here Chris because I mean West Brom uh, the, I mean, they've turned around their form recently. They're, there's two wins and two draws in the last four games. It's too little too late, I think it's safe to say, um, even though they're not mathematically down yet. Um, you've got Stoke then on 30 points and then Southampton on 32. I mean, would you be sad to see Southampton go, um, given the, the, you know, the struggles they've had this season? Would you rather see someone like Swansea maybe go down? I mean, I'd rather see West Ham myself, but... Uh, who do, who do you think's going down, Chris, from these sort of potential five or six candidates? Um, I mean, look, West Ham haven't got a great run either, to be fair. They've got um, Man United and, and Everton at home. Yes. Everton seem a bit Jekyll and Hyde all of a sudden away from home. Um, and then Leicester away, which again is is not a great set of results. I, I have a sneaking special West Ham will be okay for some reason. I don't know what yeah, that is. Maybe just intuition. Um, for me, the the interesting one in this is what you touched on there, Swansea, because they play um, not only Stoke but also Southampton. Who, I mean, to be fair, Southampton looked dead and buried and, until this weekend against Bournemouth, mm. um, and they seem to have just sort of I don't know what it is with Southampton. They almost just seem to care again, which sounds a very bizarre thing to 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 say. I read a piece recently that said there was a lot of division in the ranks there between some of the, the English players and the foreign players and there wasn't a huge amount of confidence in Wesley Hope, the, the Dutch centre-back who came in and was perhaps seen as a replacement for Virgil van Dijk, who I think we're now starting to see the influence he had on that team. Not necessarily as a footballer, but as a leader and someone who held the group together. Because um, you look at players like Mario Lamina, who in the first half of the season were fantastic. I'd have swapped anything for, for Mario Lamina. Whereas... During that second half of the season, he's just looked a bit indifferent and a bit apathetic sometimes. And and it's those intangibles that I appreciate we can't always quantify on the podcast, but those are the things that concern you because they're expected. Um, and I think that's, that's the thing with Swansea is that because they have both Southampton and Stoke, they're going to have two really big crunch matches in theory. So they're going to have to try and ride out with that and, and try and get some points because they're only on 33. So a, a win for Stoke 
a win for Southampton. Um, or actually, probably going to need to be maybe four points for Stoke, given that the goal difference they're on. Um, but four points for Stoke, a win for Southampton. Next thing you know, it's it's Swansea and Huddersfield planning for a, a forty-six game season. It's. I think, as we mentioned, I think Huddersfield could really get sucked into it. Swansea, as you mentioned, playing Southampton and Stoke in their final two games, both at Swansea, both at home. So that could be uh, that could be crucial. Um, have you got any shouts? Who's going down? Nico, a bold prediction: that Huddersfield going to suddenly drop into the uh, the bottom three. I I imagine. I want to say Swansea because as much love as I have for Bobby Gardner, um, you know the man, their manager doesn't doesn't he said something egregious about statistics one time and and Southampton will probably be the most talented side to ever go down given how much talent they have on that team. So I'd like to see Swansea go down. I really don't want to see Southampton uh, face relegation, but yeah. Would you not like to see Mark Hughes relegate two teams? In yeah, one but season? like you know, that's the terrible choice that you're putting that you're giving me there. You say, <laughs> yeah, I want to see Mark Hughes out of the game. The one time I interviewed him, he was a dick to me. Uh, he's also, you know, Mark. <laughs> oh, Hughes. you've got a personal vendetta against. Mark I have Mark a Hughes, personal basically. vendetta. As the, I mean, this podcast has a personal vendetta towards Mark Hughes, so it's it's par for the course. But I mean, <laughs> it is Southampton. They still are a great club. I don't know what they were doing hiring Mark Hughes. Um, they have Dusan Tadic, who's you know, one of my favorites, Mario Lamina, who is the next uh, Musa Dembele. So they have all these great players. They should right. not go down. And I mean, none of those players are going to stay if they do. So, um, but yeah, I'd like to see Swansea go down. Hmm. Maybe Southampton so Spurs can get Lamina and replace Dembele on the cheap. Can I also say, can I also bring my receipt to the to the table and say, I did say West Ham were going to be in trouble at the beginning of the season. I also said Stoke were going to be in trouble. At the beginning of the season, and Stephen Housen said West Brom could could take Arsenal's place. I think in the top six, something like that, and they are finishing dead last. Did he say that? So, did Stephen uh, say that? Because it felt he like he said something along I think those lines. I'd, he said they could. Yeah, I think I jokingly suggested that West Brom could leapfrog <laughs> Arsenal, and Stephen Housen sort of non-committally said, "Yeah, maybe they could." Um, and now that's been taken as Housen said West Brom are going to finish in the top six or something. That's a ridiculous um, thing to yeah. say, though. Uh, the one thing I'd say about Huddersfield just quickly is that they finished last season awfully on negative goal difference granted I think they they put their eyes firmly on the playoff race knowing they'd qualify they would qualify but my goodness they just ran out of steam completely possibly because of the way they play and I've got a sneaking suspicion that's about to happen again yeah that final game at Arsenal um feels like that could that's be the there do or die. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I think no points there and they're going down, I think. Finally, this week, we have to talk Barcelona. Uh, Barcelona confirming their La Liga title victory this weekend with a 40 victory over Deportivo La Coruña, Nico. Uh, Clarence Adolf's Deportivo La Coruña. 
Yeah, a very good Deportivo, well, not a very good Deportivo La Coruña side, but still, one this season. I mean, they, uh, Barcelona did secure their relegation with, I think, two or three games to go after winning this one. But um, it just, it's been interesting, kind of, I think we were going to kind of talk about how some people felt that you, it's the same same kind of thing with Manchester City. Their, their season is ultimately defined by their performance in the Champions League, and even though they are on the cusp, or actually, I guess, already achieved it in some sense, even though they still have league games to play that could mar that record, um, they will achieve or hope to achieve a La Liga season unbeaten. I mean, that's incredible. Mm. Um, and given how they've played, given, given everything that happened, before the season, they lost Neymar, obviously. They did buy Philippe Coutinho, probably one of the better players in the world, um, in their January transfer window. Not in, not a, a situation many clubs are in the fortunate position of of, uh, of being in. But at the same time, I think they, they've done well to kind of write the narrative that was written about them before the season even began. Hmm. It does feel like this league win is somewhat undervalued perhaps due to the lack of serious competition for the title it is the earliest a Spanish league title has been won in 20 years as you say Nico perhaps will be valued more if Barcelona do remain unbeaten um, the first team to do so since 1932 but yeah it's interesting that you that you say that in, in and I don't mean to 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 violently disagree with you in any in any <laughs> fashion but um just look at this Deportivo La Coruña win or loss for example like that's something that I wrote about earlier this year in terms of will Manchester City face difficulty in the Champions League because of uh, a lack of approach in, in terms of English teams. And I think the opposite is true of Barcelona. Deportivo La Coruña won the ball back a number of times by high-pressing uh, Barcelona, which is something that you rarely see here in England from English teams and really around Europe. I think their La Liga, even of teams that are secured to be relegated now, um, they have more in-depth tactical approaches. And although it didn't work out in, in this specific case, you see teams like Real Batiste and other, other teams that are challenging Barcelona, how they don't necessarily want to be challenged, which I think makes those teams better. Messi, Suarez, Coutinho, all these guys have better experience playing under pressure. And I think they tactically become a more versatile, versatile team because I think there is a more dynamic approach to pretty much any team in the Liga. And I was talking to um, Om Arnvid, who is uh, the managing editor of the uh, of the S- of SB Nation's uh, Madrid website, which is like, probably like one of the largest congregations of English-speaking Madrid um, fans, I think, in the world. And they, uh, he kind of mentioned to me that, I, I mentioned this theory to him a while ago, and he said, yeah, I mean, it checks out PP, their, uh, the um, La Liga team's PPDA rating, which just stands for passes per defensive action. Their rating was generally higher than most teams in Europe, and it just, that, that metric kind of quantifies a high press. So it, it's kind of interesting to see that, that narrative and, and talking about it and how Barcelona don't really live up to that. They do have a relatively mm. fierce competition in, in, in their league. Mm. Uh, and of course this weekend that competition coming from Real Madrid who are going to be out to spoil the party um, spoil that unbeaten record in El Clasico Sergio Ramos as well saying Madrid are not going to give their rivals the traditional guard of honour for the champions which should be interesting um, but I mean Chris despite this league win I think what's interesting is Valverde himself has, has sort of remarked that that defeat to Roma in the Champions League it has marked their season like I say if they remain unbeaten it may be valued differently, but right now it's three years in a row Barcelona have been knocked out of the quarterfinals of the Champions League. Uh, once again, another disappointing performance this season. 
how do they reassert themselves as a force in Europe? It feels like, you know, they've, they've dominated the league um, for the past 10 years, which we'll discuss in a moment. But do they need more quality and depth in their squad? Is it as simple as that? Antoine Griezmann is someone who's long been uh, rumoured to be joining the club this summer. Yeah, the, the Ramos thing tickled me as well. I believe there's a chance that Nico will probably know quite well that we'll, uh, we'll clear what uh, Barcelona fans think they should do with the Guard of Honour. Um, I, I think how they get back to to um, Champions League or European success, that to me is such a difficult question because really I think the problem is is that the way that they've played and specifically the quality of players has meant that there's been almost a little bit of a laziness towards reliance on Messi, or at least that's what I took from watching them against um, Chelsea and, and Roma, because in both games, um, or in, certainly in the, the second leg against Roma, if you shut down the space and, mean he's, and make it so he's literally got nowhere to play, there's no one sort of... everyone. Messi is one of those players that when he gets the ball for some reason, a lot of his teammates tend to go static. And and for me that is it, it's a bizarre thing, but it needs to be rectified at the same time. Um, I totally see why you would move him into a central position because he's such a wonderful footballer. Um, the idea of buying Graysman to me doesn't seem to solve the problem. I don't think adding another attacker in there just fixes things. I think you almost have to open up the machine and and tweak the way the ball is is moved rather than the players that are moving it. That that to me is what springs out now. How you fix that? I don't have the answer right now. Um, if Barcelona want to fly me over, I'm, I'm happy to spend the weekend trying to, to come up with something. But I think that's hey, where... offer there. It's, yeah, it's an interesting point. Uh, Chris raises there, Nico. I mean, Messi, of course, has had another incredible season. I think it's 31 goals in the league, uh, another stunning total. But is there that sense that he's... he's not as effective in Europe as he could be with the team not set up to, to, to help him do that? I think it's more of of um, maybe a conversation to be had about how much weight we put on you know European competition in terms of perception. Like I said before, their their season is almost entirely defined of, about what they do in Europe. You know, regardless of the fact that they may achieve something um, wonderful in, in domestically, but at the same time, I, I think to speak to the points that Chris was talking about in terms of buying Griezmann, who has been a, a target for them for a while, or a rumored target, it's more about replacing a, an aging Suarez, who clearly, from a physical aspect, is suffering. Like He's always been someone that I think is kind of, in some sense, maybe not to an extreme like Higuain is, but to some extent has struggled with keeping maybe a more athletic physique um, and is clearly doing so in every match I see him. And, and not only that, but he is just suffering from the fact that he's getting older. He's not as physical as he used to be. He's not as quick. He's, he's a little bit heftier in his movements. So I think the Griezmann uh, transfer would more address that that kind of thing. And I think he Griezmann is the type of player, we've seen it with France, we've seen it with Diego Costa, we've seen it with different players at Atletico Madrid. He can sort of play a supplemental role or work well with somebody else so even if he's not their main target if they decide to put someone else centrally a lot of those players are very fluid Philippe Coutinho wanders around the middle very fluidly Messi as Chris kind of alluded to there goes even in the game at the weekend against uh, La Coruña um, he went from the right wing to, to central positions and Usman Dembele does similar things and I think that's what they're looking to make him do they're trying to make him a more complete player by making him more fluid so I think Griezmann with all those players will kind of help that 
what they do need to evaluate also in the summer is the fact that, and I'm sure we'll speak about this in in more depth, is that someone like Iniesta is leaving. And I think James York pointed pointed this out in midseason when kind of the the uh, their, the narrative of them not necessarily being in crisis sort of started to dissipate was that they still are depending on some very old players to do a lot of things for them. Iniesta has played a large role in the last couple of years. I mean, Busquets is so incredibly pivotal to how that team looks to possess the ball and get themselves out of trouble. Like I mentioned before, there are a lot of La Liga teams that look to press them um, very aggressively and very high up the field. And without Busquets, I don't see them getting out of a lot of the situations. And there's not a Busquets, you know, running around every, every, they're not growing on trees for, for lack of a better um, Hmm. word. So it can be really difficult to replace that kind of player. And so with that, with these recruitment things, we look at from an analysis perspective, you don't just try to go out and say, okay, let's get a player that's going to perform exactly like Busquets because the likelihood of finding someone like that, even for Barcelona, even with the buying power that they have is unlikely. You have to try to maybe, as Chris was talking about there, open up the hood, open up the engine of the car and say, how can we change the play differently so that we aren't facing a significant drop off in performance if we lose this player if we lose that player and for Barcelona there are a lot of positions where they especially in midfield where they need to address those problems it's they have won the double I think you know we're we're we're, we're examining these issues of Barcelona they have won the double which is nothing to sniff at and I mean you mentioned it there Nico especially considering at the start of the season this was a club on the verge of crisis Neymar of course left PSG there was that vote of no confidence in the club's president but how has Ernesto Valverde managed to to orchestrate this success from the jaws of failure? What has he done on the pitch that has transformed this side? Well, he's utilized Messi in a different way, and I think he's also done something similar to that of what um, the manager before him did, Luis Enrique, is that he's kind of gone away from the, the stereotypical Barcelona that we know, which is to be this all-dominating possession team. They still use a lot of possession. They still do those things, but they can allow themselves to be defensive. For a large portion of the year, they didn't have Usman Bele, so a lot of the time they were forced to kind of retract the ball back, play through pressure, and a lot of the time, as I've spoken about you know, a number of times both here and in my writing you can create the like we all know when we're watching football that a counter-attacking situation is fantastic for the attacking team because all of the factors sort of um, favor the the ones who are trying to score a goal right so if you can play through pressure if a team is high pressing you if they're holding a high line against you if you can play through that then you have essentially created a counter-attacking situation without needing to cede possession. And so much of what Barcelona have done this season from what I've seen of them, and I've seen quite a few games now, that's what they're doing. They're playing into other teams' hands. They say, okay, we're going to dominate the ball and try to break you down. And if that's not successful, they let teams come on to them. They, they use the talents, the distribution of Andre Ter Stegen, the ball you know, ability of someone like Umtiti and, and Busquets and other guys like that to progress through high pressure. And then they have the open field. And when you have Messi dribbling at a back four or Coutinho or any of those extremely talented players, you're going to have success. And to some extent, we, we can kind of branch into this the discussion of their performance in Europe. That's a really good league approach because there are a variety of different opponents that can succumb to those kind of tactics. But when you're facing a team of, of a greater quality that has the tactical ability to manipulate you to stretch your formation and do those kind of things, I think that's where you kind of fail. And as we're seeing now, you know, this is, I think, the ninth La Liga title that uh, Iniesta and Messi will win together and obviously the final one for for Iniesta. Um, 
it's it's the it's maybe a lack of of a more or rather of a less domineering approach that kind of has failed them in Europe to some extent wouldn't you say well yeah it's i think more broadly speaking it's nine times really extra as you say it's that domination of the of the league which has been so interesting i, I like the way that uh Barcelona's social media team were, were were positioning this one. It's seven out of the last ten league titles for Barcelona. They seem to be saying on Twitter earlier, I forget the being the first team to win back to back Champions League. This is the real era defining achievement, Chris. Would you go along with that? Seven of the last ten, it is phenomenal. Yeah, it's it's funny. I was watching something with Brian Clough um today. It flashed up on my YouTube suggested. Um and he basically said, you know, I'd trade the League Cup, the FA Cup, the European Cup, just to win the league. He said, because from a management perspective, you need a bit of everything to win the league. Um, and I think the same goes with players too. You know, you need consistency at least, um, especially in performance. And we often talk about the, you know, those difficult midweek away games where sometimes the, the title is won and lost. And, and I think for that reason, they deserve tremendous credit because it's, a league title at its core is about consistency and to win seven of the last ten, as I believe you said there, was that in itself is, you know, almost consistency squared, you could argue. Well said. Um, I think I think just to, just to kind of branch into that as well, like you mentioned there Barcelona's social media account talking about, you know, trying to position these things in a way that is favorable for favorable for them. So seven titles in 10 years, seven La Liga titles. I mean, that's an incredible achievement. We talk about the consistency that Manchester City have had for winning the league in which in in the the manner in which they've done um this season in the Premier League. But I think for a lot of people out there, and I don't know if this is the case for you two, but we kind of look at Real Madrid's achievements or their possible achievements and say, if they win the if they win the Champions League this year, that's three Champions Leagues in a row. That's incredible. And I think at this we would almost say that's more impressive than seven league titles or however many league titles Iniesta and, and Messi have won together, right? So from a logistical standpoint, I think the reason that we kind of look at it in that manner is because there are so few teams that win the Champions League. There's so you know, there's so much that kind of goes into the Champions League in terms of we look at it as Europe's premier competition, which it is. It has the best teams across the continent and stuff like that. But, I mean, which should really be viewed as more impressive? The consistency across, you know, what is 7 times 38 quickly is like 266 games versus possibly being lucky for a season or whatever. Like, how should we look at these things and... Is that a discussion that I think as football fans we need to have? I think it is a very interesting discussion. Um, there, there's something I think about the Champions League, about the the prestige of it, of of those stunning moments that seem to, to arise in the competition that means it is valued more highly above a league title. I think, you know, we've spoken about this a couple of times recently, but the, the fact that Apart from in Serie A, of course, it feels like you know the 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 league winners has been obvious. Manchester City, Bayern Munich, Barcelona—they they had the titles sewn up in back in December. So therefore, I think those achievements are undervalued somewhat. But I think that's unfair, as you say, the consistency over the season, over that number of games, and for Barcelona, that number of years to win seven out of ten is 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 staggering. I think whereas Real Madrid. 
I think the Champions League is an incredibly impressive achievement. And don't get me wrong, back-to-back Champions League to be the first team to have done that is phenomenal. But I think, you know, you look at the teams they perhaps played in their run to that final. Um, there's so many different factors that go into it. A one-off sort of cup game, beat over two legs in their sort of knockout stages. There is that element, um, if not of luck, but that element of anything can happen, really. But Whereas there, but there is a there is a large amount of luck to it as well because like Manchester City or or let's go on the other end and say Liverpool for mm. example you would say that the the best team in terms of stylistic advantage this year that they could have drawn was Manchester City because they've beaten them in the league when they were even and and they have this pressing style that kind of yeah, plays towards beating City so like there is luck in the draw I mean unless you believe in UEFA conspiracies and whatnot but. yeah I don't <laughs> know if it's luck if it's chance I, I don't know there's that element of it's random right as you say right. uh, Liverpool drawing Manchester City yeah is it lucky in a sense is it just the the, the chance of it Real Madrid, as I said, the opponents they had in their run to the final last season was relatively kind. I mean, if they do it three times in a row, it will be sensational. But for me, I think I do think the league achievement is is undervalued somewhat. And seven out of ten for Barcelona. I know I joke about you know the social media team trying to paint that as way more impressive than winning back to back European cups. But, but, but do you also say uh, that because you're a Spurs fan, Adam, and, and you're gonna forever miss out on the league? Huh? Uh, let's move on to Iniesta. <laughs> Speaking of uh, era-defining uh, players and moments, Iniesta, the Barcelona-Spain legend, he, he did announce he was leaving the club at the end of the season. What, nearly 700 appearances, 32 trophies in total, nine league titles, as you mentioned there, Nico. Um, he is, of course, accepting a, a lucrative move to China by the looks of it. But, Chris, what a legacy he leaves at Barcelona. Oh, yeah, tremendous one. A, a, a beautiful player who... Um, I think for me it almost reinforces the the beauty of football because um, I don't think there are many sports that have such a wide scope of differing athletes in it and what I mean by that is um, from a size perspective tall, small, chunkier, skinnier that kind of thing it's, it's a very inclusive game in that way football and I think Iniesta really kind of typifies that and I appreciate what's been said about him and Ballon d'Or. I think that's a really pointless debate to have at this stage. But I think what I can say is that around that period of sort of 2008 to 2012, he was a truly beautiful footballer to watch. He was someone that understood the game. And I think the best words I heard attributed about him were from Fernando Torres, which were loosely, to paraphrase him, when he got the ball, everything else slowed down. How do we expect Barcelona to cope Without Iniesta, Nico, do we expect Philippe Coutinho perhaps to be seen as his direct replacement? Mm, I think they're very different sort of stylistic players. I see more Coutinho as like an inside forward and someone that's going to be always farther up the field than Iniesta ever was. There was a lot of criticism at some point in time when I think statistics and their use in the mainstream media was like very in, you know, in, in the very infancy. And a lot of people would say, well, you know, Iniesta has a terrible goal. I think Sergio Ramos has a better goal tally for Real Madrid than Iniesta does. So, but that obviously does not speak to the the immense impact that he had on that team, both in their, you know, incredible period of dominance with Pep Guardiola and Messi and, and everything that they were able to achieve, I think is the first team to win um, six trophies in one year. But just to kind of, to look at it from a different way, I mean, we looked at his part, I think the, the main part of his legacy 
was his partnership with with uh, Xavi and in that midfield and how almost telepathic I think a lot of people imagine that was and there was a documentary a while ago that that kind of they had interviews with both of them and they kind of talked about how they just kind of knew where they were and it was the the very first sort of global I don't know, global representation of a group of guys, really, or a group of players, rather, that have played together for such a long time that it almost seemed like they always knew where each other was going to be on the pitch. And I think it's interesting to see that 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 dynamic has continued to be in Spain. We've gone from the greatest midfield duo of all time, you know, possibly being Xavi and Iniesta, to another historic midfield duo staying uh, in Spain and being at Real Madrid with Luka Modric and Toni Kroos. So... Spain, La Liga specifically, enjoying two of the best midfield combos of all time in consecutive fashion is is a pretty crazy thing. Yeah, <laughs> I love that Iniesta was the the. I mean, you mentioned there about how some people used to criticize him for his lack of goals, lack of end product, as it were. But yeah, he was the man who scored the the all important goal in the 2010 World Cup final. I think that's it's quite fitting. Um, but yeah. Andres Iniesta uh, leaving Barcelona at the end of the season. Um, before we wrap up, before we move to the end of the podcast, uh, any other business from this weekend? There was uh, the Serie A title race, Nico, taking uh, another twist, another turn. Um, a week after Napoli seemed to have pulled it back from the brink when they narrowed the gap down to one point. Um, it's all gone horribly wrong this weekend. It has all gone horribly wrong. It is now Juventus's to lose. They were two goals down, or two goals down from, from their desired result, which was a win against Inter. And then they magically, through subbing Paulo Dybala on and, and uh, Iguain header, and I think in the 93rd minute, um, they were able to come back. A lot of people, there was a lot of VAR decisions in, in, in this game, and specifically one at the beginning of the match that gave, that retrospectively gave an Inter player a red card, and then uh, Miralem Pjanic um, committing what, in many people's eyes, was several second yellow card fouls, but VAR not stepping in <laughs> on those occasions. So the Calciopolo, however you say that word, Calciopolo um, scandal continuing with with Juventus there. But yeah, they came back against Inter, which was an, an incredible game to watch. And then it was sort of, you know, Napoli, who last week had beat Juventus to, to kind of close the gap to one point again, had it all to play for the next day, only to lose three hmm. nil um, in some controversial VAR, or not necessarily controversial, but some VAR decisions as well. Kalidu Koulibaly, I think, in the eighth minute, um, fouled a Fiorentina player right outside the box. Initially, it was a given by the referee. It was a penalty and a yellow card for Koulibaly. And then when they went back and looked at it on the you know video assistant referee, it was a red card for Koulibaly and no penalty, which would eventually necessarily be inconsequential as they lost 3-0. I think a brace or a hat trick, I forget. But um, it's either a brace or a hat trick from Diego Simeone's son, who they call Cholito. Um, so, yeah, it's really exciting. Now the, the gap is, I think, four points. or Yeah, four points. Um, so, mm. unfortunately, unless Juventus lose two games or... Or uh, lose one game and, and draw the the Serie A title race is is kind of Juventus is to lose. What do you make of the application of, of VAR, Nico? Because I, I think broadly speaking, people are for it, but it's the the execution of it that seems to to grate with many. It's the the uncertainty, it's the confusion. Is it simply that you know this is a new? process that football fans and the game needs to adjust to or is there a better way to, to integrate it into the game 
I think like anything, people are going to be impatient about these things and expect far too much at the beginning. Like we're humans. We're meant to like we we're meant to break things. Everything that like if you ask a group of people not to do something, they will likely do it and then do it 15 times over. Like it just will take a little bit of time for this to be seamlessly implemented. And I think a lot of these situations were rightly handled by VAR. And it kind of made me think in in context of the Kudabali file, like that's a decision that I think no one would have argued with having seen that unless you watch the replay over and over and over again because the video assistant referee was able to see the exact position that Kudabali uh, fouled him and, and kind of retrospectively made those decisions. And you just kind of wonder how many games that were, you know, that had significant officiating decisions like that that nobody really questioned because it looked like what it looked like unless you kind of went back and really... Um, took apart the decision how many games have sort of been by I guess the metaphysical properties been decided incorrectly because that changed the very you know the very fiber of the game had Kudabali stayed on then you would have said Napoli probably would have won that game they're a much better team than Fiorentina but you know they had to expose themselves they knew they had to win they had to sort of go forward and make themselves vulnerable so I like I like the the kind of use of VAR I think it'll get better as time goes on and it's just something that people if people have a little bit of patience with then it will get better but if you constantly bitch and complain about it then you're just gonna not like it (laughs) it is that it does feel like the main issue is that lack of communication Chris in in how the decision making process progresses when using VAR Uh, we saw a couple of weeks ago it was announced the Premier League will not be implementing VAR next season uh, the clubs have voted to extend trials for another year Uh, do you think that's needed before it's refined enough to, to be used in the Premier League to be accepted yeah, I think I think part of the problem is knowing when to apply it. That's that's the the difficulty, you know. In the, in the same way that you don't ring nine 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 when you call you when you cut your finger, um, I think VAR has applications that will provide clarity, and others where it won't. Because long before we had VAR, there were many a time when you would have a video replay again, which was another. Remember, video replay is an innovation within sports, specifically football, and there have been times when we've had the ability to replay an incident and still not receive clarity on it. Um, and I think the same allowances need to be made for, for VAR because it doesn't um, provide, I think, clear and, and defined answers to every single problem that you throw into it. I think that's the problem is that some people are reacting to VAR as if it's some kind of cure-all and that if it doesn't solve every problem, then it can't solve any problem. And that's not really the best way to look at it. And on that note, that is the end of today's Front Free Football Podcast. Guys, thanks so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you're excited about the future of the Front Free, as excited as we are. We're going to be back tomorrow uh, with a match reaction after Real Madrid Bayern Munich to give some immediate analysis uh, and and insight. But until then, until tomorrow, uh, Chris, where can the uh, listeners, where can the whole find you? on our brand new Twitter account. Hey, looks looks great, doesn't it, Nico? Love the new design. No issue. <laughs> uh, Nico, where, where can people find you? They can find me on Twitter. I recently wrote something. I published it on Friday talking about Manchester City, their consistency, difficulty, stuff like that. Go check it out. People like it Some some for some reason. I thought people were going to hate it, but they like it. So We'll be back tomorrow. We'll see you then.
magic number. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 